You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Welcome to Sojourn Montrose. If you don't know me, my name is Reed Squires. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I'm the pastor of operations, which simply means that I do a lot of stuff behind the scenes. Usually I work with volunteers and finance and facilities uh, and things of that nature. But um, if you're new with us, um, our pastor of preaching and vision, Marshall Dallas, is the guy who's usually up here, is on an extended sabbatical that will end uh, on Palm Sunday, April 9th. So um, that's why we've got church planners and myself and other folks up here uh, these Sundays. So um, please pray for him and his family that they would find rest um, and continue to find rest in this season and also that their health would be good um, and that they would come back uh, ready for the labor uh, in Montrose. <clears throat> so thank you for praying for him. Um, okay, so let me explain a little bit about where we are in the church calendar, right? We are in the season of Lent, and Lent is known for being a somber season uh, of reflection and recognition of sin and death. So it sounds morose, um, but it is a season really of preparation, right? We, we go through the season of Lent um, exploring the consequence um, of our sin and the depths of sin and death, and, it, and it's in order to prepare us to realize the heights of God's love, right? So we excavate um, our own sin and our mortality, uh, which on Easter Sunday, we realize that, that um, the heights of God's love and grace to us knows no bounds. So that's the, that's the reason uh, we do Lent, um, and we know that it, it prepares us, right? It prepares and humbles us for Easter Sunday when we celebrate the risen Christ. Um, so this season, we, we, before Lent, we were walking through the book of Matthew, um, the gospel account of Matthew, and we took a break in Lent to walk through a more obscure book of poetry called Lamentations. Lamentations is five poems um, written by the prophet Jeremiah uh, regarding the lament and sadness and protest of the people of God um, about the fall of Jerusalem to the, the empire of Babylon. Um, so it really gives us a chance to shape our grief and join God in his sorrow and lament. And I don't, uh, we're in our third week, but I don't want us to miss this, right? Our Lamentations is um, divinely inspired poetry written by humans, right? Um, about their grief, their lament, their sadness, their sorrow, their protest to God. And God inspired it, hears it, and, and makes it his own word in, in Lamentations, which that's, that's huge, right? It, it means that God joins us in our suffering um, by giving voice, his voice, to our own protests. Um, it's unique to the Christian God, right? He joins us in our suffering, not only in the lament poetry, but in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we're gonna, um, we're gonna explore that this morning. Um, I think this is big for us as the church, especially in America, because... Um, Frankly, maybe this is your experience or maybe not, but my experience is that the church has glossed over grief in a way. Um, but God doesn't do that. Jesus is called the man of sorrows. He, he says, blessed are those who mourn. He, he weeps, he cries out on the cross. So he knows our sorrow. And in Lamentations and in the, the person of Jesus, he invites us to, um, to be blessed through our sorrow. So what does that mean? Uh, we're gonna explore that today. In Lamentations 1 and 2, we get beautiful, beautiful poetry 
um, and personification of sin in Jerusalem, right? We, we see Lady Zion personified um, as, as a woman who is under affliction. Um, and we see all these things as the, the personification and metaphors for God's discipline to his people in order to call them back to himself. Um, but in Lamentations 3, Jeremiah, the author, changes and shifts the tone from being metaphor to poetry that's in the first person. Um, and he speaks to us in a way that, that is meaningful. So I'm going to pray uh, and ask God for grace, and then we'll jump in to Lamentations 3. Father God, humble us this morning. Um, humble me. Remind us that uh, we have all been called here for your purpose and your glory, and not our own. Lord, would you teach us through lamentations um, and show us new aspects of your character that, um, that have been imprinted on us. Lord, I pray for us who grieve this morning, who are in sorrow, that this would be a warm blanket to us. Um, I pray that you would be good to us this morning. Be gracious with us. Be gracious with me as I preach um, and wield your word. Yeah. Pray for our, our people um, this week in our neighborhood, in our city, in our world. We love you. Uh, thank you for all things. In your name we pray. Amen. Cool. So read with me in the beginning of Lamentations 3. It says this, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. <clears throat> Excuse me. So this, this is our tone shift. This is uh, from Lamentations 1 and 2, first-person characterization of the wrath of God on Jeremiah, the author, the prophet. Um, I am the man who has seen affliction. He has turned his, his hand from me, right? Um, and Lamentations 3, in the beginning here, goes on to explain an aging and decaying and dying man. Um, but it also is paralleling what happens to Jerusalem, right? Enslaved, surrounded, blocked from escape. Uh, desolate. It's strong imagery for one person, yet, yet Jeremiah is taking on the personification here. Um, he's taking on the afflictions that are, that are happening to the people of Jerusalem. And so I think to understand this a little bit, we need to understand the author. We need to understand who Jeremiah is. Um, if you look in Jeremiah chapter 1, which is the, ver or the, the book preceding this book, uh, Lamentations, chapter 1 verse 4 says this, now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And as it continues, the Lord tells Jeremiah that he will be with him. That the Lord will put words in his mouth and that Jeremiah will speak the words of God to the people of Jerusalem. So Jeremiah is not perfect, right? That's, that's Jesus. But he's certainly set apart from Jerusalem here for a specific task to speak to Jerusalem. He's chosen by God in the womb, which is a beautiful truth for us. But in this context, it means that, that Jeremiah is chosen to be faithful to God. He's chosen as God's worker, his messenger. Um, and he's, he's different and pure in a way that Jerusalem hasn't been. So Jerusalem's sin that, we, that we're let into in Lamentations is they've been rebellious, right? They've They've created other idols. They're not worshiping God. They've left him. But Jeremiah doesn't necessarily have that sin. He, he's working with God. He's a prophet for the Lord. 
So he's, he's pure and blameless, but not perfect. But he's, he's blameless and not at fault for these sins that Jerusalem is, is at fault for. Um, yet, he's afflicted here, right? Yet, he's personifying the afflictions of lamentations and the afflictions that God is pouring out on the Jewish people. And I think Jeremiah is teaching us something. He's teaching us that even though we may not be guilty of specific sins, as believers, we're still responsible to confess and repent and turn to the Lord and even endure discipline for the sins of our culture or our community. This seems incredibly unjust to us, right? Like, um, but we have to understand the context here and our context. America, in the West, um, our culture is hyper-individualistic, right? We're one of the most self-centered cultures in the history of history. And so we think, oh, wait a second, I don't need to, I don't need to repent. I'm not guilty of, of the sins of all of my culture or all of the church, Right? But look at Jeremiah's disposition in the poem here. God is angry with me. Specifically, he drives into, the ki- into my kidneys the arrow of his quiver, fills me with bitterness, made my teeth grind on gravel. I cower in ashes. I have forgotten what happiness is. But in Lamentations 1, don't forget he says, the Lord is in the right for we have rebelled against his word. Right? So, we can't forget that disposition either, that Lamentations is, um, is the protest and cries of God's people, but they know that his wrath is just, but they're really kind of saying, this seems a little harsh, God. This is a little bit too much for us to bear. But uh, at least for Jeremiah, right, this isn't deserved, and he has an opportunity here to, to distance himself from the people of God. Um, to distance himself from Jerusalem. He could say, look, I'm not really guilty of of rebelling of these sins, uh, but I'll tell you what God says about them. I'll tell you to repent. I'm I'm a prophet of God, so, so I'm not really suffering in the rebellion that you guys are suffering in. But he doesn't do this. He, ta- he takes on the afflictions of his people, Right? takes responsibility for their sins, and, and he does this physically. I am under the rod of wrath. Personal, physical language taking ownership of the cultural sins that plague him. So we as Christians, we're not immune to this disease of self-centeredness that plagues the American culture. Um, it's like Carlos said, or I'm sorry, it means that we can't look at, at systematic injustices, right? We can't look at systematic racism, uh, we can't look at systematic poverty. We can't look at the hypersexualization of the media. We can't look at materialism. We can't look at these things and say, well, I'm not personally guilty, um, but some people are. It may be true that you're not personally guilty of some of those sins, right? But you're probably not personally uh, blameless for all of them. But we need to communally accept that and and take responsibility for these things, right? Among these sins and others, we have a corporate responsibility and we're communally guilty for them. And we need to lament and grieve because of them and we need to repent because of them, right? Even if we're not individually at fault, 
Jeremiah teaches us that you got to own these sins, right? A lot of times, lament just means that we're honest. It's like Carlos said last week, we don't need to put a bow on our grief or our lament or our doubt or our frustration. Lamentations and ultimately the person of Jesus invite us um, to be human and remind us of our of our image bearerness of God and that he invites us into sorrow and walks with us in sorrow and grief. Um, the media and entertainment industry will paint us always as happy robots, like Stepford Wives, just always happy and talking about Jesus in the Bible. And um, That's not exactly true, is it? Like, if you're a Christian in the room, you know that's not true. We feel, we grieve, we have sorrow. And a lot of times, uh, we feel deeper than our culture because our souls are groaning for something that they've tasted. Our spirits groan for glory that we know awaits in a way that our culture can't experience because they don't know that. They know their culture is groaning for something, but they can't pinpoint it. But we've tasted, seen Jesus, and our culture, our, our spirit groans for that in a way they can't understand. Lament means we can be honest and speak frustration, grief, doubt, sadness. We can speak those things to God, but not in a vacuum. We do this in hope, right? Let's keep reading. Uh, You can skip to verse 17. It says this, my soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished so has my hope from my Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks it. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So this is, again, striking poetry. And what strikes me is that Jeremiah contradicts himself, right? In verse 18, he says, my endurance has perished and my hope is dead with it. My hope in the Lord is gone, which directly contradicts verse 21. Therefore, I have hope, right? It's astounding. God gives voice to our our argument that we have with each other sometimes, or in our heads sometimes, right? He gives voice to our emotions here, and and Jeremiah can be dramatic and confess, "I, I can't run anymore, I can't walk anymore, my endurance is gone, I've forgotten happiness. My hope is dead. My hope is dead. But because of this, and because of the memory of what God has decreed, Jeremiah has hope. How how can this be, right? And the argument is essentially this. God is being faithful in his discipline to the rebellious people. And since God said he would do that, I also believe when God said he would be merciful and forgive that he will do that as well. It's essentially Jeremiah's argument here, right? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. So what does that mean? The Hebrew word is hesed. 
uh, here, and it means covenant love or loyal love, right? So you have to realize that God uh, doesn't love in the fail, failed way, in the broken way that humans love, right? God loves in a, in a perfect way. Um, and when God decrees something, it comes to pass. So God is obligated to have forgiveness and mercy for us. He's obligated to love us. And when we hear this, we have to realize that we think that obligation and natural love don't, like, they're at odds with each other, right? If, well, if you're obligated to do it, then, like, I don't want you to feel obligated to do the dishes. I want you to just want to do the dishes. Um, but this type of obligation, God's obligation, strengthens love because, because he made the covenant in the first place, right? He, he decided to make the covenant, the promise with the people that he would love them, that he would forgive them and be merciful to them. It's like marriage, right? Intense love is there and then they make the covenant that regardless what happens, right? Regardless of circumstance, love will always be there. It's a covenant love, loyal love. Certainly, we don't do this in marriage perfectly, right? But God does it perfectly. And he does do it perfectly. Jeremiah knows that clearly they have failed to keep their covenant with God, right? Uh, If you look, you don't have to turn there, but the story of Moses in Exodus, he leads the people out of slavery, uh, being told and and strengthened by God to do so, Um, And he ushers in the new covenant and it says this, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do, right? So right when they get into the wilderness, Moses says, here's the rules. This is what God wants for us. And it's all for your good. And they say, everybody like in unison says, we will do all of this. And then immediately Moses goes away to the mountain and they fashion a golden calf and worship it, thinking it was better than when we were in Egypt. They immediately rebel. But what does God do? He's merciful to them. He shows up to Moses and he says, the Lord, the Lord, this is God speaking, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression, transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And Moses hears this and quickly bows his head toward the earth and worships because Moses knows that they don't deserve compassion. Jeremiah is saying this, look, we failed to uphold our covenant, Right? as your people of God, and you said you will discipline us out of love to call us back. And now that is happening to Jerusalem. But you also said that you would be merciful and you would save us forever. Therefore, I have hope, right? Because so far you have done what you said you would do. And Jeremiah has hoped that God will finish his saving work. And we on this side of history know that he does. The story of the people of God in the Old Testament, excuse me, is a story of rebellion uh, and a story of mercy after mercy after mercy. It doesn't end though, and it's not complete, right? 
It's a simultaneously a story of, of wandering and rebellion and mercy and forgiveness. And it's complete in the whole picture, the whole story of the Bible. The Lord's intention with the people of the Old Testament was to win them back for himself. And that's his intention with us today. God knows that sin has to be paid for, right? He said he will. He said sin is evil and I am good. And God cannot look the other way because he's righteous. It means he cannot turn the cheek on sin. And his answer and his solution is the gospel. This, that's why we call it the gospel. It's the good news. The good news of the Bible is that sin has to be paid for and God does the paying for it, right? He puts on flesh, becomes human, encounters sorrow, experiences lament, he suffers and dies and rises from the grave in victory over sin and death. That's Jesus. That's what we celebrate at Easter. <clears throat> in doing this, the lament of us and the lament of Jeremiah is answered, right? The hope is fulfilled. Crushed underfoot is sin and death. The answer was always and is always Jesus on the cross, Jesus raised in glory, it is for Jeremiah in Lamentations, and it is for us right now. This is the good news. It is the hope for us, right? It's the hope for Jerusalem. But we know how it plays out. A friend of mine uh, in, our, in our neighborhood parish, the East Montrose Parish, um, recommended a book to me called Lament for a Son. The author, Nicholas Wolsterhoff, uh, his son, when he was about 23, died in a mountain climbing accident, tragically. Um, and the book is, is a, it's not nonfiction, right? It's, or it, it's not fiction. It's nonfiction. It actually happened. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, it's a collection of entries from, from this author uh, exploring his grief and, grief and faith and doubt in light of this horrible, tragic event. Um, and if you're like me and you struggle to grasp grief and lament simply due to lack of experience, um, then I recommend this book. So let me read for you a passage. <clears throat> he writes this, and again, this is written in the days following his son's death. Put your hands in my wounds, says the risen Jesus to Thomas, and you will know who I am. The wounds of Christ are his identity. They tell us who he is. He did not lose them. He went down into the grave with them, and he comes up with them, visible, tangible, palpable. Rising did not remove them. He who broke the bonds of death kept his wounds. To believe in Christ's rising from the grave is to accept it as a sign of our own rising from our own graves. If for each of us it was our destiny to be obliterated, and for all of us, it was our destiny to fade away without a trace. Then not Christ rising, but my dear son's dying would be the logo of our fate. Slowly, I begin to see that there is something more as well. To believe in Christ rising and death's dying is also to live with the power and the challenge to rise up now from all our dark graves of suffering love. If sympathy for the world's wounds is not enlarged by our anguish, if love for those around us is not expanded, if gratitude for what is good does not flame up, 
if insight is not deepened, if commitment to what is important is not strengthened, if aching for a new day is not intensified, if hope is weakened and faith diminished, if from the experience of death nothing good comes, then death has won. Then death be proud. So I shall struggle to live the reality of Christ's rising and death's dying. In my living, my son's dying will not be the last word, but as I rise up, I bear the wounds of his death. My rising does not remove them. They mark me. If you want to know who I am, put your hands in. Our God suffered, right? He took the ultimate suffering and purchases for us daily redemption. In doing so, he understands our suffering and purchases for us eternal life where suffering and death are no more. That is, that is the logo of our fate, not death, not death. That's why in verse 22 and 23, it says, his steadfast love never changes and his mercies are new every morning. His love never ceases for us because of what happened on the cross. <clears throat> so to finish up and to recap, Jeremiah in Lamentations 3 takes on the anguish and lament of the people, although being blameless himself, right? And this lack of hope and presence of grief actually equates to hope. If God is being faithful in his pursuit and destruction of sin, how much more faithful will he be in his mercy and forgiveness and love? On this side of history, we know that this mercy knows no ends in the heights of Jesus' work on the cross. So let's uh, finish up by reading um, and talking about uh, the end here in verse 37. It says, Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled and you have not forgiven. So the call here is for repentance, right? Specifically communal repentance. Let us, let us return to the Lord. Let us test, let us examine our ways. It's a call to confess as a community, right? We are sinful. We are rebellious. That's simply what repentance is, right? It's acknowledgement of sin, um, acknowledgement that it leads to death, and turning the turn to Christ, right? An actual turn away from that which we thought promised life but actually promised death to Jesus who actually promises life and delivers this is our response in light of God's mercy, right? Um, it's, it's our response to his mercy, his love, his faithfulness, his, his forgiveness. We don't repent and turn back to him to earn anything. That's not repentance. We do it because we've gotten everything in, in Jesus. We gladly and joyfully obey the Father, right? Admitting when we don't and returning to him when we stray, knowing that Jesus has already done it. He's already forgiven us. We know that we're secure in his love and forgiveness. Verse 42, um, yeah, we know that we are secure in his love, right? Look with me in verse 42. You'll notice another, uh, another contradiction. It says this, we have transgressed and rebelled and you have not forgiven. 
Yet in verse 58, he says, you have taken up my cause, O Lord, and redeemed my life. The rest of Lamentations 3 is a play between these two present realities, God's righteous wrath against our rebellion and God's mercy and action to forgive and be merciful and redeem. We have all these action statements about what God is doing in Lamentations 3. We have, you heard, you came near, you have seen, you will pursue. It's because Jeremiah knows that the action belongs to the Lord, right? It's true for us today. The action of our repentance is is a result of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to us as a pursuer of sin. So he calls us to repentance, he calls us to community, and he calls us back to Jesus. He sees, he hears, he comes near. Salvation belonging to the Lord means that it's his and that he is the actor. And it's true grace when we understand it this way. God's plan for redemption doesn't rely on us, it relies on Jesus. His gift of the Holy Spirit doesn't mean it's up to us to figure it out. It means we'll be gifted with a spirit that repents and that walks in community and that wants the things of God. He aids us in our own holiness after aiding us in our own salvation. So our salvation in Jesus is eternal redemption, right? But in the, in the gift of the Holy Spirit, we have daily redemption. His mercies are new every morning. Communal responsibility just means that we bear one another's burdens, right? That's what we do in the neighborhood parish. That's why we want you to visit one and be part of one. We confess and repent individually a lot of times, but, but in the parish, we call each other to walk in the light in the light of who we are in Christ and whose we are in belonging to him. We tell each other that we're new creations, that we've got the Holy Spirit, and that we're to turn and run to the cross. And that he will walk with us in our daily sorrow, our daily grief, our grief over death, right? That's the picture of Lamentations 3. So as a final two points, um, Let me first address, if you're an unbeliever in the room, let me say this. Christianity is a faith of joy, absolutely. We have joy and hope in what will come, and we have joy and hope and freedom and faith in what happened with Jesus' death and resurrection. Happened for us individually, and it happened for us as the church of God. But that doesn't mean we don't have sorrow. Of course we have grief and sorrow and doubt and frustration, but it looks differently than yours. We don't have a a God who is removed from our sorrow, right? We don't have some cosmic tyrant who, uh, who bosses around the working class. He's a God of majesty, absolutely, of love and beauty and power, but he's a God of sorrow as well. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Jesus weeps, right? He cries out on the cross, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our God knows sorrow. Psalm 56, 8 says, you have kept account of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? The God of all creation knows your suffering and lament. He gives voice 
and structure to them in the poems of Lamentations, and he personifies them on the cross. And he invites you to walk suffering out with hope and joy instead of hopelessness. Please consider this proposition. And finally, uh, as a reminder, if you're going through a hard season, a suffering season, a season filled with grief, uh, and you are a Christian, think back to God's profound mercy to you in saving you. Put your hands in his wounds. Rise again to a new day with new mercy. Be comforted in that. And hope in the fact that God has decreed flourishing with him forever and his people. A wedding feast where death is not our logo. It it reigns no more. That is our hope. It doesn't mean you don't walk in sorrow or sadness. But it means we do so with hope. Risen life is our mark. That's why we baptize. That's why we're raised from the waters of baptism as a symbol of new life, rising with Christ in his life. God has done what he said he will do. And we hope in the fact that because he has been faithful to save us, like he said he would, that he will be faithful in the decree that, he will, that we will have a new day with him soon. And we will because he said he will. Or said we will. Well, that's good news. Let's pray. Father God, great is thy faithfulness.